are listening to a podcast from The National. It seems relatively simple to reduce global warming to less than 2 degrees Celsius within this century. But in 2015, when the Paris Agreement was being worked on, it took negotiators from the 196 countries that eventually signed the accord two weeks of intense negotiations, built on years of work. The idea is that each country would propose their own national plans that would outline how they intend on curbing their emissions to reduce their impact on climate change. Every five years, they would reassess their plans with the aim of pledging to do more in the fight to save the environment. Two degrees doesn't seem like much, but scientists warn that with just a 1.5 degree increase, we'll begin experiencing unlivable summers, increased natural disasters, rapid species extinction, and food and water shortages unlike we've ever seen. And with that, probably knowing that, less than two years into this legally binding and historic accord, US President Donald Trump, the leader of the biggest per capita carbon emitter in the world, decides to pull out. This is Beyond the Headlines. I am Nasr Al-Wesmi. We're recording this episode from COP23 in Bonn, Germany, where the world has gathered for the annual meeting to follow up on the Paris Agreement. The way the conference works on the national level is that countries who signed up, especially those who can afford it, set up booths in the hall. They serve as their meeting grounds, stages to showcase what they are doing, their pledges of confidence in the fight against climate change, and to display their identity. The German booth, for example, is made entirely out of reclaimed wood and is comprised of meeting halls and open spaces. The Chinese pavilion, efficient and a no-frills affair, a stage and rooms to deliver their groundbreaking decision to tax carbon. Fiji, the host country, attempts to transport visitors to their Pacific island, which is one of the first expected to disappear from rising sea levels. There is one big omission, however. There is no U.S. pavilion. Yet, despite the U.S. government's absence, walking around, the characteristic volume-cranked voice of Americans is everywhere. The reason is because days after the announcement from the White House, a movement was pushed forward by American entities to ignore Trump's order and stick to their part of the deal. Six months since, 15 states and thousands of entities ranging from churches to universities and businesses decided to stick to their Paris Agreement goal. Overall, the climate action movement represents 40% of America's economy. America wants the world to know that they're still in. Their pavilion, or what replaces it, is set up outside in a huge bubble tent. People can walk in and out, notably without registering months in advance and waiting the long security queues so characteristic of global conferences. The huge pavilion, perhaps a representation of the country Americans want to be, is futuristic, beaming with activity, and most importantly, open to all. I'm joined by Lou Leonard, a senior vice president of climate change and energy at the World Wildlife Fund. So now that the US President Donald Trump said that basically he's pulling out his government uh, from the Paris Agreement, I mean, what does this mean for you and what does this mean for the global effort against climate change? So I think many people were afraid that if 
the president uh, made an announcement like this that it would mean that other governments would follow the president out of the Paris Agreement. And the good news is that no government has uh, has taken Donald Trump up on um, on his offer to to leave. So you saw in the G7 uh, meeting in May, uh, the other six countries of the G7 said to the president, uh, uh, "We're not uh, pulling out of the Paris Agreement, and we don't want you to either." And then a week later, he decided he was going to start the process to pull out. But then a month later, at the G20, the 19 countries of the G20 said, "We're not going. Um, you know, we are committed to the Paris Agreement," and that's significant because the G20 includes countries like Poland and Saudi Arabia. So two countries that you could imagine might have taken, uh, may, might be the most likely to have taken the president up on his offer, and nobody has. So I think that the good news is that the president's standing alone uh, on this, uh, and that no other governments have followed uh, suit. But I mean, it, it does kind of send a message, a signal to other governments that perhaps, you know, especially when you're reading stories that say, you know, we're nowhere near uh, 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 achieving the the, climate, the Paris Agreement uh, goals, doesn't it send a signal to other governments, other entities that maybe uh, we're not there yet, or that we won't get there? I think that um, that is one of the reasons why here in in Bonn at the UN talks uh, in Germany, it was critical to have other leaders from the United States who also have political power, who also are important for the energy transition in the United States to come and tell their stories directly to other governments. And that's what's happened with the U.S. Climate Action Center and the what's called the We Are Still In delegation. So there's over 100 um, leaders from the United States here who are part of the 2,500 leaders who have signed on to the We Are Still In movement. And they're here in Bonn to tell the stories about the energy transition in the United States. So I think that is important because otherwise people would only have what they read about um, from the White House as their uh, understanding of what's happening in America. And that's actually not the full story. I, I, what about on a national level? I mean, surely uh, what happens in the Trump administration uh, kind of signals to the rest of the country the domestic policies, especially uh, kind of setting environments uh, on, on the back burner or maybe... Who knows, after three years or when Trump leaves office? I mean, what does that mean for, for domestic American policies? So uh, I don't want to minimize the impact of, of having um, an administration that does not support climate action, does not support uh, environmental issues more broadly. It's significant. It is going to slow down the role that the federal government plays in this uh, important transition. And what it means is that the U.S. is not going to move even faster, which is what it needs to do. So that is significant. That said, I think it is uh, nobody expected the response in the United States domestically to the president pulling out of the Paris Agreement that we have seen. Um, and what we have seen is it turned out to be a moment that in some ways woke up a whole other um, group of leaders in the United States. And they realized, oh, if we want Paris to survive and if we want the world to believe that the United States can be trusted to keep its promises, then we, this other group of leaders, need to stand up and we need to do more. And that's what we've begun to see. Uh, I was at a panel earlier and uh, the governors from California and Washington were there and they were saying, we, I mean, yeah, China can step up, step up and India can step up, but also as states, we're, we're able to, to enact independent from or, or, or to act independent from the federal government. How much of an effect do you think that will have uh, on sending a message outside of, of America to countries that we're actually still in? We're 40 percent of America's economy. 
Yeah, and in fact, if you add up all of the governors uh, who have who have said we continue to support the Paris Agreement, and all of the mayors and all of the corporate executives, it 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 is actually um, about half of the U.S. economy and about half of the emissions in the United States. So um, that means that there's, you know, and these these leaders have power that matters, right? So, th- so this U.S. Climate Alliance, which is 15 governors, including the ones that you just mentioned who are here from Washington and California, but also Republican governors from Maryland, Massachusetts, Vermont, who all have said, and they released a report in September that said, we are going to do more than we had planned to do because of the president's decision to pull the United States out of the Paris Agreement. And we, we remain committed to the U.S. and D.C. of 26 to 28%. So this isn't just, you know, kind of general statements of support for the Paris Agreement, but it is specific statements of support and actions to back it up to support the USNDC. And that's actually what we're going to need to send the signal to the rest of the world. It, it can't just be talk. It has to actually be new, act, new actions that are consistent with meeting the U.S. target under the Paris Agreement. I mean, let's shift gears. Uh, what about internally as an organization? I mean, surely you, you work all around the world, but of course being based in the US, you must have faced some challenges. Are there any challenges and what are they? So I think there are there certainly are challenges with with having the US federal government out of the game. Um, and in particular where the US federal government is actively trying to undo policies that support climate action. That is a real challenge. At WWF, the reason why um, uh, we remain really active in the United States is because the work that we have been doing has for years has been about helping businesses, mayors, others uh, outside of the Washington landscape landscape have the tools that they need and get, and have the push that they need to do more. So, for example, um, we work on something called the Science Based Targets Initiative, which is a which is an organization that that works with companies to set individual targets to reduce their emissions that are in line with what the Paris Agreement says is necessary. So that can still happen, and in fact, we're investing more in that work than we did uh, than we did before. And I mean, NGOs, uh, international organizations, states are all acting independently. I mean, are you? Do you think that this uh, movement to to say that Trump actually doesn't Trump's policies don't represent us as Americans or as American entities? Do you think it'll pick up speed? Do you think that there'll there'll be more commitment from other uh, uh, organizations and people in general? So right now we um, have. So when the president made his announcement, um, three days later, the we are still in. Uh, movement was born. And at that time, it had 1,200 leaders, 1,200 governors, mayors, corporate executives, and university presidents uh, in the United States saying, we remain committed to the Paris Agreement, and we are going to take action to ensure the U.S. meets those targets. Since that time, in the last four months, the the movement has doubled. So it went from 1,200 to over 2,500 leaders. And now it includes um, uh, Native American tribes in the United States, religious institutions. There was a bishop from California here um, uh, saying that that their community remains committed, in fact, is going to do even more to make the moral case for action as well as reducing their footprint. So the movement is growing. Um, what we need to see is more action uh, that is consistent with, with those uh, with that. Um, those intentions. So, for example, um, uh, what you know, what we need to see this week in Bonn is we need to see some of those signatories to this movement stepping up and saying, "I'm going to make a new commitment to do more." Um, you know, I'm going to pass new policies. I'm going to um, you know do more. So, I think that's the next step is ensuring that that uh, that that happens. And when Trump does leave office, be it 
uh, in, in three years, in seven, or even earlier than that. Can the U.S. get back in? I mean, is the process that's being put forward, can that be stopped and reversed? So, uh, so f- first off, the U.S. is not out yet because the way the process works is um, no country that has joined the agreement, and the United States joined the agreement a year ago in uh, last fall in September of 2016, no country that has joined the agreement can pull out for three years from the time that the agreement took effect. So that means from November, uh, the first week of November 2016 until the first week of November 2019, no country can even begin the process to pull out of the Paris Agreement. And then in, Jan- in, in November of 2019, the first moment you can do that, then you have to wait a year before that withdrawal is effective. So that means the first week of November 2020, which also happens to be uh, the time of U.S. Uh, elections. So, the, so the the timing is convenient. I think the other thing that's Im- that's important here about what happens um, next is this movement. This we are still in movement. This movement of leaders in the real economy of the United States, whether it's corporates or mayors or governors. This is what we need to actually implement the Paris Agreement targets in the United States, no matter who's in the White House, no matter who's in the White House. And in fact, if you look so far, the U.S. is is about halfway today to meeting its 2025 target and with almost no federal policies because President Obama was not able to actually finalize his policies because he had a Congress that was not supporting it. He he he, he passed it. He, he enacted the Clean Power Plan using his executive authority and it's been stuck in court. So all of the progress that's been made so far has been made by these actors. Right. So that means we need to do even more from those actors. But also if 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 they become an even stronger force for climate action, if you add to that a president in a few years who is committed again, then that means the U.S. can go even faster, which is what we need. And I would the last thing I would say is this isn't just an issue in the United States. This is what we need in every country that has signed on to the Paris Agreement, which, by the way, is every country in the world, right? So this is what we need all over the world. We need it in countries like India and Australia and Brazil that have a federal system like the U.S. does, where power is shared between the national government and and subnational governments. We need it everywhere where the business sector is a driver to climate change, which is everywhere. So I I hope that this movement in the U.S. can actually... Um, inspire other countries and and the corresponding leadership in other countries to say, we're actually going to support our national government in reaching the Paris goals. One of the biggest concerns of the agreement was who carried the biggest responsibility to reducing climate change. It's a concept called burden sharing. The wealthiest economies, the most developed countries, are also not surprisingly the biggest carbon emitters. The idea was that countries that were still developing would be burdened by painting their economies green, as they were still in the growing pains of building their nation. Switching towards clean energy, low-carbon industries and electric vehicles cost money, and developing countries' argument was that it's not fair for them to have to pay when they're in the midst of their individual industrial booms. Nations who had the benefit of building their countries in their own industrial revolutions with reckless abandon had contributed to a great deal to the current state of global warming. So it was agreed that developed countries who had the means would help those developing countries achieve their goals outlined in the Paris Agreement. But when the richest country decided to pull out, it left a huge gap in the $100 billion fund for other countries to use. I'm now joined by Niranjali Amarasinghe, an associate at the Sustainable Finance Center for the World Resources Institute. 
So could you just briefly explain to me how the funding worked? I mean, is it just the basic concept that rich countries uh, help the poor? So that concept is contained in the, um, in the agreements that we have right now in the international climate space. It, it does set the commitment that developed countries have, um, uh, have to provide finance to developing countries to uh, assist in their efforts to address climate change. And that's both for mitigation and for adaptation. There's also what's called a financial mechanism. And there are operating entities that support that mechanism. And, and the notion is that um, some of climate finance would flow through some of those funds. So the Global Environment Facility is one of them, uh, and the Green Climate Fund is another. There are also other funds that have been uh, uh, established through these uh, processes. One is the Adaptation Fund that was set up through the Kyoto Protocol. And there is also the Least Developed Countries Fund and the Special Climate Change Fund, both administered by the GEF, that uh, help to channel funding to developing countries. So now that America has pulled out of the Paris Agreement or has begun the process of pulling out, I mean, what does this mean for the developing countries that were maybe depending on some of the funds that were provided by America? Mm -hmm. So first, I think it's important to uh, recognize that the U.S. withdrawing from Paris doesn't change the fact that there is a commitment to provide climate finance. Uh, and um, obviously the Trump administration has made clear that uh, it won't put forward the remaining $2 billion uh, pledge to the Green Climate Fund. But ultimately, uh, financial appropriations are determined by Congress. And uh, it's unlikely that funding for all climate-related programs will be cut. So there may still be some finance that ends up flowing. There will obviously be an impact. Uh, I think we will feel some backlash from developing countries who will feel the, the lack of finance, uh, to especially to adapt to climate, uh, to climate impacts. And there may also be some uh, challenges with our, some of our closest allies who are also contributing to climate finance uh, and, and, and may feel that the U.S. isn't doing its fair share. I mean, we're talking here about uh, sending signals, right? I mean, uh, already we're hearing scientists, policymakers around uh, the conference talk about how, as of right now, we're not doing enough. Taking a step back, especially with the second uh, biggest carbon emitter pulling out, I mean, does that, does that, could you just elaborate a little bit about how, you know, the U.S. is, is sending a signal or if maybe in the future... Uh, uh, that that signal could change depending on what happens in the presidency and what's happening especially with all the uh, uh, entities that have stepped up to do the uh, we are still in. Right. And I, I think it is important to know that, that politics change and, and things could change um, uh, if they're uh, in the future in terms of the U.S. role in, in climate action and, and in climate finance. And it is heartening to see that there are other constituents within the United States from cities and from states who are stepping up. I think from a finance standpoint, we'll feel the loss in, of, of the U.S. finance, um, at least in terms of what's been stated, but uh, it means that there is, uh, we need to think about 
how to spend the existing public money we have wisely. There is incredible potential in the private sector to bring in more money. So I think if we are strategic and are investing public resources in the best ways possible to make sure that we're responding to developing country needs while also finding ways to crowd in finance from the private sector, it, we, you know, we can still keep the ball rolling until things change and hopefully they change for the better in the United States. So, I mean, you have countries like China, countries like India stepping up and really uh, committing further to uh, the uh, Paris Agreement. I mean, that kind of embarrassed the whole claim that the climate, global warming is a hoax that Trump said. But there's developing countries and there's developing countries that are a lot poorer, unable to enact those chains. Painting your economy green is a really difficult process. So, I mean... Could you tell us a little bit about the difference between, you know, those bigger countries that are developing and, and the economies are growing and those that are really struggling to make ends meet? Right. So the needs are clearly very different depending on, on your economy and where you are geographically. I, I do think that overall uh, we will save a lot more in the economy if we make these shifts now than if we wait the if you're able to implement certain measures that will help to reduce climate impacts on vulnerable communities then you are making potentially an impact later on if a disaster strikes there will be less suffering less loss of life if you can implement strategies today so uh, it's really important to try to make these shifts now i think where the differences might come in is what your financing strategies might be Right. So um, with mitigation, I think there is a lot more, um, uh, a lot more. Uh, at right now, we're seeing a lot of movement in the private sector, especially in clean technology, clean energy investments, etc. And all of that is very heartening and we should you know, continue to make that happen. And in those economies, it'll be really important to figure out um, how do we do more of that in other sectors. In, in poorer and more vulnerable countries, uh, there's a, a much stronger focus on, on how we respond to impacts of climate change. And I, I think that's where the climate finance plays a very important role because we're seeing there, there's not enough adaptation finance. So we, you know, we need to see more of that. Yeah. And then finally, I mean, what do you hope to see between uh, now and then COP24 and 25 as we reach closer to that 2020 uh, uh, target? Uh, overall or on finance? Uh, oh, let's say overall. Yeah, so I, th I think one of the, the big things uh, going in, you know, coming in from this year into next year is, is the rules that will help implement the Paris Agreement. I, it's called the rule book in, in shorthand, right? It's really important to have that. And it's also really important to be on the path towards thinking about how all countries enhance what's called enhancing their national contributions right so how do we Im improve upon what's been done now and, and, and increase action over time uh, and on finance I mean we just need to see uh, we, we need to see the money continue to flow we need to see uh, in ideally more private sector money coming in the, the there was a roadmap that was released on finance last year and the mid-range estimate was saying we we could get to 93 billion so it's heartening so we just need to see more I'd like to thank my guests, Lou Leonard and Niranjali Amarasinga. I'd also like to thank our producer, Kevin Jeffers. You can find this and all the other national podcasts such as Extra Time and Business Extra on Apple Podcasts or wherever else you get your episodes from. I've been your host, Nasr al from Bonn, Germany. Thank you for listening and goodbye. <laughs>